Pastor Ben, is it all right if I move this down here? All right, get a little closer. Thanks so much. Man, thanks for that welcome. That was really cool. Can I, can I put this down? I'm, uh, yes, Pastor Ben's tall, and I'm not. Okay, now it's, all, it's made known. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, well, thanks so much for, uh, for having us here with you today. Um, like I mentioned um, earlier, our vision at H2O Campus Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ at the University of Michigan. So we're constantly, as we do that, we're constantly just evaluating what that means. Like Jason said, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to make disciples of Jesus Christ? What does that call entail? What part can we play in making disciples of Jesus Christ? Um, Jesus actually has a lot to say in the Gospels about discipleship, about making disciples. Disciple actually was Jesus' preferred word to describe his faithful followers. Um, I have a PowerPoint slide. It says the word Christian, which is, which is most commonly what we use to, to talk about each other, is used three times in the New Testament. It's a great word, but it's used three times in the New Testament. The word believer, which is another word I, I love to use in talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, is used 54 times in the New Testament. The word disciple is used around 250 times in the New Testament, give or take, depending on, depending on the translation you're using. Most of the time by Jesus. Right? Jesus, I mean, you, you guys, you guys who, who have read the Gospels, you can just picture Jesus saying, if you will be my disciple, over and over again, talking about his disciples. So let's take a, a few minutes today and learn from the way Jesus made disciples while he was on the earth. First, his message of discipleship, and secondly, his method of discipleship. Let's just jump right into it. First of all, Jesus' message of discipleship. Now, I grew up in the church, and I can't, I can't count how many times throughout my life I heard people say things like, well, this person or that person, they're saved, but they're not really, really living for God. You know, they're not really fully living for God. As I studied scripture, as I grew in, in, the, in the knowledge of scripture, I realized that this is, isn't even a biblical idea at all. By definition, a Christian, someone who's been born again, saved, redeemed, made new, is a person who has given everything to follow Jesus. The New Testament, the New Testament makes no distinction between a believer in Christ and a fully devoted disciple of Christ. It doesn't differentiate in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't differentiate. If a person considers himself a Christian or a believer in Christ, Jesus requires that he be willing to give everything to be a disciple. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not willing to surrender everything to Jesus. There's no such thing as a Christian that says, Jesus, I'll give you this part of my life, but if you ask for this part of my life, no, I can't give you that. Now, Jesus is patient with us, right? Jason was talking about this process of holiness, this process of devotion. He's patient, patient with us. He doesn't put his finger on every part of our life at the same time. Thank God. Man, it would be too much for me to bear. I'm grateful that he's patient with, with me. But as a Christian, you make a commitment saying, Jesus, whatever you give or whatever you ask, I will give. I don't know what you'll ask, but I'll give. It's, it's similar to, um, I saw some pictures of this, this boot camp. What do you guys call that? Warfare camp, um, it's, not, it's not unlike somebody who's enlisting in the military, right? When somebody enlists in the military, they don't know what's going to be required of them, right? They, they don't know everything that, that the military is going to ask of them. They don't know where they're going to be sent. They don't know 
how painful it will really be to get up at 5 in the morning and run 6 miles you know, and vomit because you're running so much. Like, they don't know what that's going to feel like. But when they're enlisting in the military, they're committing to do whatever the military asks of them. Uh, it's similar in, in the walk of discipleship. When we commit ourselves to Jesus, we're saying, Jesus, you're my commanding officer. I will do whatever you say. I'll go wherever you send me. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know what it's going to feel like. I don't know how much pain you're going to take me through, but I'm going to go through it, whatever it takes. That's the commitment of a disciple. That's the commitment of a Christian. Jesus' message was radical. Let's look at Luke chapter 14 together. It's a very, uh, very happy passage. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic there. We'll see. Luke chapter 14. Let's read verses 25 through 33 together. Are you there? All right. Verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, whoa, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it. For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Man, isn't that challenging? Let's read that last verse again. It, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Man, that's intense. Whoa, Jesus. Hold on a minute. I don't know if I'm ready for that. That's a, that's a high call. Jesus' message was radical. This passage is about the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. You know, grace is free. It's free because there's nothing we can do to earn it. And no matter how much we give, it won't even begin to pay for it. The things that we have to give do not count. It's not currency to pay for grace. Grace is free. It has to be freely given. But it's not cheap. Somebody paid an infinite price for grace. And Jesus says that we have to give everything we have to receive grace, even though it doesn't begin to pay for it at all. Check out verse 25 of this chapter. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus said these really challenging words to large crowds of people, right? Jesus wasn't, wasn't speaking an easy message to the multitudes in order to get them in the doors of the church, only to then do the bait and switch and say, oh, by the way, this is really what you're required to give. Jesus gave this message to large crowds of people. The, these people who, who thought Jesus' miracles were incredible and, and were, were so excited about this new guy who was on the scene. And he turns to them and he says these, these challenging words. It seems like Jesus is trying to weed out people, you know? This isn't the only time that Jesus speaks harshly to multitudes either. In Luke 11, verse 29, it says, As the crowds increased... Notice that as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. 
That's Luke eleven twenty nine. It's not exactly what you'd want to, to say to a, to a crowd of people if you're, if you're trying to, to build a mega church or gain a large following, right? In John chapter 6, Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. I'll just summarize John chapter 6 for you. It's an incredible passage. So Jesus just finished feeding the, the 5,000. So all these people were following Jesus, like I said, excited about his ministry, seeing his miracles, huge fans of Jesus, you know, loved his teaching. They were just, they were just so, um, so psyched about this, like, this new celebrity who's on the stage, right? And then Jesus turned to the crowd and he said, ask them if they'd raise their hands if they wanted to accept him in their hearts. No, no, Jesus didn't do that. He turned to the crowds and started telling them that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. All right, sometimes, you know, you, you read that passage so many times and it kind of, the, the offensiveness of it kind of, kind of loses its, its power a little bit. But think about hearing that, you know, for the first time. Like, you're following Jesus, you're, you're a fan, you're excited. And then all of a sudden, Jesus turns to them and says, hey, if you want to keep following me, you need to eat my flesh. Oh, and by the way, you need to drink my blood, too. You need to, here's my arm, take a bite, and don't forget to drink the blood, too. Like, that, that's, that's graphic, right? That, that's offensive. And needless to say, many, many people turned away that day and, and ceased following him. And then not only that, Jesus turned to the 12 disciples and he said, you're going to go to? You're going to leave me to? Consider this your invitation. Here's the door. <clears throat> I love Peter's response in that chapter. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? <laughs> you have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Man, that is faith. I, I'm sure that... that that Peter was, was just as confused as the rest of the crowd. He had no idea what Jesus meant by, by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And Jesus never explained himself. He, never, he could have easily said to the crowd, okay, wait, I don't really mean physically eat my flesh. Like, that's not what I really mean. I don't really mean drink my blood. It's a metaphor for spiritual things. Like, that's what Jesus meant. But he didn't tell them that's what he meant. He could have easily explained that. So, Jesus, or so Peter was probably just as confused as the rest of them. But Peter said, Jesus, I, I love you. I trust you. I'm following you. I, whatever you say, I'm going to listen to. You have the words of eternal life. Where else would I go? Where el who else could give me salvation? Only you, Jesus. That's faith. Man, that's the kind of faith I want to have. Whatever Jesus asks me to do, even if it's crazy, even if it sounds ridiculous, even if it doesn't make sense, I want to say to Jesus, I'm with you to the end, Jesus. So Jesus wasn't interested in gaining as many fans as possible who weren't really committed to him. He was interested in followers who would stay faithful to him no matter what he required of them and who would carry his salvation in its purest form to the world. Jesus couldn't have a message of salvation that was tainted or watered down. He needed the gospel in its purest form. And that's still what he's interested in, a group of people who will carry his salvation in its purest form to the world. So we're back in Luke 14, verse 26. Here Jesus says that we are to hate our own families, our fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, spouses and children. How are we to interpret this? What does this mean? How can Jesus 
Jesus be teaching that we have to hate our families? Like, is that really what Jesus is saying? We know from, from other parts in the New Testament, even out of Jesus' own mouth, that Jesus tells us to love others, just like we love ourselves. And Paul even exhorts husbands to love their wives enough to die for them. So there must be something. You know, like Jesus isn't actually saying hate in terms of desiring the destruction of another person. You know, not hate in that way. But the kind of devotion Jesus requires of his disciples will cause us to act in ways that many would see as unloving towards the people that we really love the most. I think of, I think of missionaries. Um, I'm a missionary, but I'm not, I'm not a missionary like some missionaries. You know, like, I, I'm in Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is a great city. <laughs> I love Ann Arbor. I spend my afternoons at coffee shops hanging out with college students, you know. Um, my brother Josh is a missionary to the, uh, I think Josh was here, wasn't he? He was here a, a year or two ago. Some of you guys might remember Josh Payne. He's a missionary to Russian-speaking Muslim peoples um, in Russia. And in that part of the world, they occasionally have car bombings and terrorist attacks and innocent people die. Um, my brother Josh and his wife Amber are risking their lives to bring the gospel to these people who don't even want the gospel. They don't want a missionary there. They're risking their lives for that. Um, he's, he's putting his wife and his future family in, in harm's way. And a lot of people look at that and they say, like, what is wrong with this guy? Like, what, does he hate his family? No, he doesn't hate his family. He's so devoted to Jesus Christ and his love is so intense for Jesus Christ that it causes him to act in a way that people who don't understand will look and say, man, that guy has no love for his family. Doesn't he care about their safety? Yeah, he cares about their safety, but even more importantly, he cares about, he cares about their eternal soul. Jesus tells us to love our, our, our families like crazy. But when you, when you look at the love that we have for Jesus compared to the love for our families, people are going to say, he doesn't love his family. Let's take a look again at, at Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus also says we must hate our own lives in order to be his disciple. I, I can't say I hate my life. I can't say that, Pastor Ben. I love my life. I have an incredible wife and two amazing boys. I have a great family. I have a nice home. I have, I have the best job in the world. I love what I do. I enjoy my life. I think it's fun. But for the sake of the gospel, all of us would gladly, should gladly sacrifice our lives to inherit this kingdom of God that is of, of incredible value, of, of so much more value than our lives. And when you, when you look at the way we act, pursuing the kingdom of God, pursuing Jesus, our life doesn't seem quite as all-important. It doesn't seem quite as eternal. This earthly life that we have in the scope of, of Jesus' eternal plan for us with him. I want to take a look at another pa passage real quick. I know I got you guys flipping around all over the place. It's in Luke chapter 9. It's a, a classic verse on the cost of following Jesus. We can't, we can't talk about this without looking at this verse. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. 
Jesus says that if we don't take up our cross, we cannot be his disciples. The cross is an offensive image. The cross is an image of death, of suffering. The cross is where Jesus was headed. If we're to follow Jesus, it will most definitely lead to the cross. The death of ourselves. Our desires, our ambitions will be put to death. There is no other path to walk if you intend to follow Jesus. You will go to the cross. You will take up the cross. The reward of the life of a disciple is eternal life, which is great, man. That's good news. That's incredible. Eternal life, man. What a joy. It's awesome. We get to live forever with him. It's beautiful. But there can be no eternal life without a death of the old life. There can be no resurrection unless there's a crucifixion. Everybody wants a resurrection, right? But nobody wants a crucifixion. Nobody wants to go through that. No one wants to go through the process of dying to self. Man, it hurts. It's painful. I hate it. I hate it. But I want that resurrection. I have to have it. And I know there's no other path to walk if I want it. Because Jesus says that in order to save our lives, we need to lose them. Jesus doesn't say we need to be willing to lose our lives. He said we must lose our lives in order to save them. I know all of this sounds, sounds pretty, uh, pretty daunting, you know. It's pretty heavy. Um, but it's not quite as heavy when you consider the value of the reward, you know, the value of the kingdom of God that we're pursuing. Matthew 13, 44 through 46 talks about this value, the value of the kingdom of God, the value of the reward of the disciple. In Matthew 13, 44 through 46, it says, the, G- the, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. We don't always think of the kingdom of heaven as a, as a valuable pearl or as a treasure hidden in a field. A lot of times we, we present the gospel as if, it, as if it's like a used car, you know? Like it's, um, we try to highlight the good parts, but there are some unsightly parts that we kind of just want to brush under the rug, and we don't want to mention those. We just want to get the person to take the car, right? We do the same thing with the gospel. We highlight the parts that, that, that seem good at first, you know, uh, that are good, that are great, the, the eternal joy, the eternal peace, no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain. It's incredible. It's awesome. And then there are parts of the gospel that, at first glance, we, we see it as, as, as less, less desirable, less attractive, and r- really unfortunate, in fact. Um, but can I, can I tell you a secret? There are no bad parts of the gospel. Even the parts that seem painful at first, they turn out to be for our own good in the end. They turn out, they turn, God turns out to make it better for us that we went through the things that are hard than if we hadn't gone through them at all. There are no bad parts of the gospel. The gospel is all good. It's all good news. 
But when you think of the value of the kingdom of God, no, no price seems too great to pay in order to inherit it. The kingdom of God is eternal life. It's a place where mamas will be united with their sons and fathers with their daughters. Broken relationships will be healed. Questions will be answered. The worries that once took up so much of our time won't matter anymore. We'll finally be rid of this old stinky flesh that always wants to sin. That'll be good. Evil and death will be forever destroyed, and we get to leave behind this fragile body in exchange for a brand new incorruptible body. The health care debate will be over because no one will be sick. We won't need to guard any borders because everyone will be part of the family. Wars will cease because the Prince of Peace will reign, and all creation will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The kingdom of God is a place where the last will be first. The kingdom of God is what Martin Luther King dreamed about. It's what Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote about in Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's what drove William Wilberforce to abolish slavery in England. And I recently learned that it's even what Gandhi wrote that informed him of the injustice of the system that he was living in in India. He attributed to, to that understanding to Jesus, which is incredible. The kingdom of God belongs to the poor and the persecuted. Yeah, it's good news for the poor. Freedom for the prisoners. Recovery, recovery of sight for the blind. Liberty for the oppressed. The best part of the kingdom is the king. The kingdom is a place that God lives with us, where we are his people, and God himself will be our God. There will be no more sorrow or death or mourning or crying or pain because all the junk that we experience in this world will pass away and everything will be made new. Why should we pay such a great price? Because it's worth it. Man, it's so worth it. Why should we pay such a great price? Because we get to be with Jesus forever. Jesus is the most beautiful being in the universe. And we get to be with him. He's incredible. He's awesome. He is so forgiving. If you only knew his grace, his mercy, his love for you, you would gladly sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. Jim Elliott was a famous missionary to Ecuador. He was martyred at the end of the spear. Some of you have maybe seen the movie. He once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Isn't that cool? I think I have that. Is it up here? Yeah, there it is. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And secondly, really briefly, so we looked at Jesus' message of discipleship. Let's look at Jesus' method of discipleship. Jesus' method of discipleship was radical, as well as his message. Jesus was out to make disciples, and he has called us to help. Matthew 28 gives us that charge. This is called the Great Commission. Many of you know it. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So look at, let's, let's, let's just look at this really quickly. Um, this, this passage gives us two clues as to what it means to make disciples. First it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That baptism portion, uh, we consider that to be 
we can consider that to be the conversion portion, okay? The salvation portion of discipleship. Baptism doesn't equal conversion, but baptism is the natural step of a convert, of a Christian, to be water baptized. It's cool to me that Jesus includes this, this talk about baptizing people within the context, context of discipleship. You know, a lot of times we think of discipleship as something that happens after conversion, right? You, you disciple a believer. But Jesus says, go and make disciples. Baptizing them includes it. Evangelism isn't separate from discipleship. It's a part of discipleship. When, you are, when you're proclaiming the gospel, that's what evangelism means. It's from the Greek word euangelizo, which means to proclaim the good news. When you do that, you are helping to make disciples. You're participating in, in the process of discipleship that Jesus has given, to, uh, the charge that he's given to us. It's the first step in discipleship. And a second clue to, um, to making disciples, he says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. So making disciples is not about teaching information. It's about teaching obedience, which I think is a harder thing, right? Any of you who have kids know this. I'm learning this. Um, I have a couple pictures of my sons. I'll, I'll show you really quick. I was, I was trying to think of an excuse to show more pictures of my boys, so I uh, put them up here. Hopefully, okay, there we go. Uh, that's Seth when, when he was a newborn, and Joel when he was a newborn. Um, at this stage, in the, at the newborn stage, a disciple requires a lot of attention. Or, I'm sorry, a baby. <laughs> We're going to draw that application in a second. A baby requires a lot of attention, right? A lot of nourishment, a lot of care. Um, it's, not, it's not unlike a, a disciple. A new convert requires a lot of, of, of investment, a lot of teaching, a lot of, a lot of just nourishment, you know, a lot of physical uh, care. And then... Uh, now Seth and Joel are a little bit older. The next picture is Seth's two now, and Joel's about one. He'll be one tomorrow. And this stage, we're starting to teach character. You know, we're starting to teach um, uh, behavior. You know, we're trying to form these guys, and and that's a, that's a whole different thing. You know, and it takes a long time, right? It takes a lot of work. It's, it's the same way with discipleship. Um, how ridiculous would it be if if a, a couple was pregnant with a baby, and and the baby was born, and they're like, whoo! That was rough. The job's done. We had the baby. The baby's in the world. Our job's done. Great. Good luck, kid. You know. Um, it's the same way with discipleship. When a when a, a person is born into this born spiritually into the kingdom of God, it's just the beginning. Um, a lot of work has already been done, but it's just the beginning. Now we need to teach that person obedience. We need to walk with that person at different stages of a person's life. They need different types of investment. It's a lifelong process of discipleship that we need to go through ourselves and that we need to take people through. I want to look at one last passage in closing. It's from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. This verse is, is a verse that we use in our ministry at University of Michigan to, to remind us the depth that we need to make disciples, okay? To remind us of the depth that we need to pour into people. Notice the four generations of disciples present in this verse. It says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be able to teach others. Look at the four generations of disciples. So who's writing the letter? Paul. He's writing to Timothy. He's telling Timothy to entrust this message to reliable men who are able to, to teach others. Look at that. That's deep discipleship, you know? So you have Paul investing into Timothy, telling Timothy to invest into others. Who will invest into others? 
it's so cool to see that, that transgenerational nature of discipleship. You know, at the University of Michigan, we don't consider ourselves a success when a person prays a sinner's prayer. Man, you kidding me? The, the, the job is just beginning. We see ourselves as a success when they learn to make disciples who make disciples. You know, that's success in discipleship. That, that will change the world. Um, the next slide shows the effectiveness in reaching the entire world for Christ. This is the race to reach the world. In one corner, we have the super evangelist who preaches a, a crusade every day of his life, um, sees a thousand converts a day every day of his life. He would have to live. You guys can go ahead and advance it. There's, there's little bullet points. I think it's pretty neat myself. But. Oh, man, it's wrong color. Okay, sorry about that. No, I'll just tell him. So he, he sees a thousand converts every day of his life. He would have to live 17,808 years, I believe is what it is, in order to reach the entire world for Christ. Now in the other corner, we have the disciple maker who is not flashy, who spends each year of her life investing into one disciple. Okay? Each year of her life investing into one, investing into one person, making a disciple of one person. Each of those people, every year, make another disciple. Okay? You get, you get the idea? So first you have two disciples, then you have four disciples, then you have eight disciples in year three. It keeps going like that. If the person continued this way, it would take her less than 33 years to make disciples of six and a half billion people. The super evangelist, 17, over 17,000, almost 18,000 years. The disciple maker, less than 33 years. We can do that. You know, each of us here can invest our lives into one person this year. Don't you think? I think we can do that. Find one person, find two people, three people. Begin to meet together, disciple each other, develop deep relationships, and equip each other to make disciples of other people. Next year, do it with a, another person or another two people or three people. You don't have to go to seminary to be able to do that, you know? Thank God, because I haven't gone to seminary. Man, we can do that, you know? We can make disciples of this world for Jesus Christ. Glorify his name across the planet. Another thing you can do, parents, your children are your disciples. Um, this is something that, that I'm learning about as I'm, a, as I'm a parent as well. Your children are your disciples. Make it your responsibility to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded them. Don't leave that up to a pastor or a youth pastor or a or kid's pastor or a teacher or whatever. Make it your job to teach that person to obey everything that Jesus commands them. Another thing you can do just practically Get involved with, with the things at this church. You know, find vehicles of discipleship that are already in place and get yourself involved with them. You have these classes Pastor Ben was telling me about, Connect 101, 201, 301, right? Get involved with that stuff. You know, learn to be a disciple. Learn to make disciples. Jesus has called us to a life of radical devotion to him and to his mission in this world, and he does not share loyalty. The call to be a disciple and the call to make disciples has to be at the core of our lives. So whatever, whatever your occupation, whatever you do, whoever you are, your job is to glorify God first. That is your prim primary role in this life. Glorify God. And what glorifies God? Making disciples of Jesus Christ of all nations. So let's do that. First, if you're not a radically devoted follower of Jesus, you can do that. You know, you can do that today. I know that I, 
I'm here, I'm saying, man, I could be more devoted to Jesus. Um, if you're here and you're like, you know, my life does not look like what Jesus has called people to in the New Testament, we can make that decision together today. And secondly, we can make a decision together today to more intentionally participate in Christ's mission to make disciples of all nations. Resolve to make disciples wherever you go. Wherever you go on this planet, whatever you do, every stage of your life, be about the business of making disciples. Be about the business of the Great Commission. It's a joy. It's just so great to be a part of Jesus' family, to be, to be included in his mission in this world to make disciples. Um, let's just commit to doing that together. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are committed to you, Jesus. All of us, none of us are there, God. All of us have such a far distance to go, Father. I pray that you'd bring each one of us in this room into a decision that we are willing to do whatever you ask us to do, even though we might not know what that's going to mean in five years or 10 years or 30 years or 50 years. We, we don't know what you're going to ask, but we're committing now to doing it, God. We're, and we'll commit then to doing it too. We'll commit tomorrow and the next day and for the rest of our lives every day. We'll commit to doing whatever you say, Jesus. And we commit to making disciples of you, bringing other people into this beautiful relationship and the value of the kingdom of God into this eternal life you blessed us with. We're so grateful to you, Father. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Those are some strong words, a strong challenge for us. And some of us do a great job. Uh, others of us struggle in this area and uh, keeping the main thing the main thing. And uh, I want to just challenge us uh, as we leave here. Maybe there's a person or two that maybe the Lord would just place on your heart to be able to invest in and to consider uh, your life being an investment into theirs to make a difference long term. And uh, boy, the, the multiplication that, uh, that Chris was talking about is really powerful, isn't it? And uh, that's our call to go and to make disciples of all nations, of all creatures here and across the world. And Lord, help us with that. Amen? Amen. I'm going to take just a, the liberty to take another moment of your time, and we'll, we'll be finished here in just a moment. Um, it's interesting how God works. And, you know, we've got a couple missionaries here from you know, the University of Michigan. Of course, Alicia's heading to Spain. We've got some... Uh, some of our women from the church in the Dominican Republic. Um, there's another guest we have that I met a few weeks ago, uh, and she is actually, you're not going to like this, but not me, you'll like it, but she's ministering uh, at Michigan State and uh, with a ministry there. And uh, she, I met her at a wedding, and uh, I said, hey, send us a you know support letter. Um, her story is very similar to yours, kind of, uh, uh, grew up and then went away to school. And I, why don't you come up, Maddie, just for a quick second. And uh, grew up in school, uh, or went to college and kind of got caught up in the sorority and, uh, and a lot of similar things. But God got a hold of your life again, which was really powerful. I want you to share that again. And, you know, God is using these testimonies. And, uh, and then I want to wrap up with a, a salvation call, because if you are here this morning and don't know Jesus, don't miss this opportunity, okay? Here you go. Uh, my name is Maddie Lavery. I um, went to North Muskegon High School. Um, I went to Michigan State, sorry. And, um, yeah, I just was not a believer going into college. Um, went and joined a sorority um, and 
yeah, just kind of live the stereotypical sorority girl lifestyle. Um, but during my freshman year, there was an older girl um, in my house who kept inviting me to this Greek women's Bible study. Um, and for the entire freshman year, I shut her down. Um, but she was just so persistent. And so finally, I went my sophomore year, um, got involved, um, ended up accepting Christ um, a year and a half later. Um, and the Greek women's Bible study was like around 10 girls at that time. Um, and over this past year, um, at the end of fall semester, there's roughly 25 women involved. Ending the year, there's roughly 60 women involved. Yeah, really cool. And so next year, I get an opportunity to just go back and love on these girls, walk alongside of them, um, as the leader did with me, and see what God does. And I'm working with Campus Crusade for Christ. That's the organization to do that. So that's what I'm doing. Thanks for sharing that. Cool. Whoa. You know, and God is moving, and God puts that in uh, her heart. She's given it a year of her life, raising support, kind of like uh, these guys are. And, uh, and you know, I can't help it but think that God wants to multiply that over and over and over within our body. And, uh, and so we share those testimonies to say, thank God that God is still speaking. And I want to just take this a moment to say, if God is speaking in your heart this morning and you are away from God and don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, if you were to die today and you don't know for sure that Jesus is your Savior, that you'd spend an eternity with Jesus, uh, would you consider saying yes to Him today? Would you consider accepting Him into your life? And again, there are many, many benefits that Chris was talking about. It's not an easy road, but it's the cost of being a discipleship is giving your life. And if you're ready to make that commitment today, and you're here and you're saying, yep, that's me, would you just slip up your hand right where you are? And we want to pray with you as we close our service today. Anyone at all. I don't know everyone here. Obviously, we've got uh, several guests from out of town and different things. Um, but if you're here and you're away from God and want to make that uh, proclamation saying, yes, I want to serve Jesus. Um, I want to be his disciple. Would you respond and just slip up your hand? Won't, I won't embarrass you, but I want to give you that opportunity this morning. All right. I don't see any hands. I want everyone to stand this morning. And again, I want you to think about one person this year that God may put on your heart to invest into. Can you think of someone this morning? If you can, just slip up your hand. If you can think of one person that you could invest your life in, just slip it up. Yeah, right where you are. And let's pray and ask God to help us to do what he's called us to do. In Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for a morning like today. God, that you have, uh, you're calling us to not just sit on the sideline in the game of life, but to get in the game, get on the field and make a difference. Lord, to invest in someone's life, to walk with someone, iron sharpening iron. And God, I just pray that you would just burn that deep within us. And Lord, for those of us that have been sitting on the sideline or just content and uh, not active in disciple-making, Lord, I pray that we would not be able to sleep at night until we are walking with someone in a one-on-one -on -one or group dynamic. Lord, help us to be soul winners. And Lord, even though this morning, uh, by the lack of showing of hands, uh, we may all be believers this morning, 
God, I pray, Lord, that we would be a church, God, that would be inviting friends and seeing our friends and our neighbors one for you right where we are uh, each and every day. Lord, in our work and at schools and and, uh, on the athletic fields. And God, wherever we go, that you would be using us for your glory, for your honor. And God, we will give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen and amen. God bless you as you go. We love you. This week, be praying for us. Be praying for our uh, students. Be praying for Alicia and these guys at Michigan State or Michigan University and, uh, of course, for Maddie in the fall. God bless you as you go.